Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. I'll be joined shortly by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. This week's episode's brought to you by you and your continued support. I've appreciated everybody who's visited buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to support the podcast and cover some of our ongoing overhead and production costs. It means the world to me for those of you who have the means to support the podcast, to see your messages and points of encouragement over there. Your thoughts on the podcast and different subject areas we should cover are greatly driving the direction of the podcast. And as you may remember from an earlier episode, we've created a Facebook forum, a group that you can join for listeners where you can share your thoughts and ideas for future episodes. So search out the Gravel Ride podcast on Facebook and join us today. This week, we've got an amazing episode focused on gravel bike maintenance 101. I'm hoping it's the type of episode that you're just going to save and revisit as you continue your journey in gravel cycling and learn more about the things you should look at and the tools you should acquire over time to make sure your gravel bike stays in tip-top shape. So with that said, let's dive right into the conversation with Randall. Randall, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well, Craig. How are you? I'm good. Greetings from the West Coast, my friend. Yeah, it's, um, I'm in Boston right now, as you know, with family, actually just outside in Waltham. And um, we don't have the smoke that you have where, where you are, though it's coming our way. Uh, there's a little bit of it in the air. I know. It's a total bummer that uh, all the West Coast fires are going to blow smoke across the country, I think, at some level. Uh, I think it, the, the, the uh, silver lining on that is that um, everybody has to be reminded about what we're doing to our planet. <laughs> So not just those who are right in the middle of the uh, the wildfires. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of truth in that. I was fortunate that the other day, we just sort of got a break. One morning I woke up and I started to look at the AQI numbers, the air quality index numbers, like we're all accustomed to do here on the West Coast right now. And I started to see it drop and I'm like, it's go time. So I, I did a, a uh, an early evening mountain bike ride. And then got up at 6 a.m. and got on my gravel bike the next day thinking, I don't know which way the wind's turning, but if it's green, I'm rolling. Yeah. Now, I saw your pictures on, on the, uh, the interwebs and I was like, oh, Craig, Craig got his fix. I'm glad. I'm glad he's you know, getting out and taking care of himself. Yeah. But knock, on wood, it's, knock on wood, it's been steady. So hopefully we've got at least a weekend of riding and, and yeah, whatever power above willing, the fires will start to die down and the wind will take all the smoke away and we can b- get back to just enjoying some consistent bike riding out here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Speaking of which, as I was sort of stuck inside in front of my computer, I, I got a notification that a, a mountain bike event I did called the trans Rockies, which was at the time a seven day stage race. It's actually been going on for 20 years and it was an absolutely epic experience up in the Alberta province of Canada they just announced they're doing a four-day gravel stage race next year. Is this like a, is this in Banff? It's a little bit south and west of Banff, if I'm getting it correctly. It ends in Fernie and uh, starts in Panorama and goes to Nipica. Um, all super cool parts of that area. And I can I just remember the big climbs from the mountain bike race and some of the, the nice fire roads we were on next to a river being so gorgeous. So it really like excited me that that they're putting their same mindset against a gravel event because the organization up there was so good. 
you camped every night and they moved all your gear. So it was just this really kind of out there experience where it was, it was tough on you, but it was also a huge adventure every day. Well, this sounds pretty excellent. Uh, how many, how many miles a day was, was it when you were doing it? You know, I don't, I don't actually recall. I know I'm looking at the specs on the gravel race and it looks like it's 50 miles, 50 miles, 60 miles and 72 miles and hovering between 4,000 and 7,500 feet of climbing per day. Okay. That's, I mean, that's like challenging, but not so challenging that you're not going to be able to recover, that you're not going to be able to enjoy the scenery or like spend time eating food with people in a socially distant way <laughs> after each stage. Is it, that's what's what happening now? Yeah. So it's, it's, they're setting it for August next year. Cause I, when I first saw it, I was like, Ooh, it might be too early to announce this kind of stuff, but registration's opening on the 21st of September and it's not until August of next year. So again, like if, if we can get people to pay attention to social distancing and wearing masks, maybe we can get back to having cool events like this. Yeah, and given my, you know, the my understanding from that I'm getting from my medical and epidemiologist friends, um, there is a a reasonable expectation that such en- events could be put on responsibly in the future, especially you know something where it's largely solo riding and you're keeping your distance and things like that. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah, and I think there's some lessons learned that are just going to be carried forward about germs, et cetera, and hand washing. I remember when I was in out- South Africa last year doing a, that mountain bike stage race, they had a, a um, hand sanitizing station outside the food tent and literally had people manning it to require every single single individual that moved through that door to have sanitized their hands because in previous iterations, they had had some flus go through the mm-hmm. Peloton. Mm-hmm. And in a nine-day race, you have the opportunity to catch a flu and uh, you know have it manifest. So it was yeah. critically important. And I suspect we'll see that going forward, just like an enhanced sensibility about when we're in these group events for the next 18 months or so, just kind of being a little more cautious. When I, I, I observed, you know, so, you know, I lived in China for a number of years and in the, you know, in the Asian cultures, East Asian cultures that I have, you know, been immersed in, there's this practice of like, if you're sick, you stay home or you wear a mask. And we don't have the mask wearing even in pandemic as a widespread, you know, um, uh, widely agreed to commitment we, w- we make to, you know, our own well-being and the well-being of others. But then this other element of staying home, like, you know, in our culture, you have to go to work, you might lose your job, or you might like be viewed as like, oh, you're not doing, you know, you're not keeping up. A lot of people don't have like sick leave and things like that. And I think all of these things hopefully uh, will change as we realize that, in fact, um, that which we extract from each other um, ends up costing us more. So even in purely self-interested terms, we don't win. Um, but there's obviously better reasons to better motivations for doing doing right by each other. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, in the meantime, no racing for me and no traveling. I know on on your side, you know, you like a, a individual adventure or just with a with a riding buddy. Do you have anything planned in the near future? So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the group ride. Um, my original intention for this year was actually to travel around the country, living out of my my converted Toyota Prius, and like linking up with some of our our riders. You know, many of whom are like you know ride leaders and so on. And uh, actually, I'm doing that next weekend, uh, hopefully, um, with um, our friends up in Kingston, New York. Uh, Joe Conkra, uh, shout out to you, Joe, is one of our riders up there, and he's the founder of an organization called Old Positive 
which is a festival that brings um, doctors and nurses and dentists and so on to the community to provide free services for artists, you know, musicians and painters and so on. And then the musicians and painters come and provide music. They prov- they paint murals. So Kingston is full of you know gorgeous, gorgeous art. Uh, it's really a place that's worth visiting. Um, and you know you get this festival atmosphere, and then the you know community members who are there to to attend, um, you know there's a recommended donation uh, for entering. But if you don't have the means, then it's still like you're still welcome here. Uh, so Joe is a, a pretty spectacular person. He was uh, we're going to be doing a, a bunch of riding on the local trails up there, and then he was recently um, uh, given the ability to help develop the old IBM headquarters up there, which is a 400,000 square foot facility where his proposal, as he characterized it to me, was um, we're going to bring in a bunch of artists and entrepreneurs and creative types, and in six months we'll figure something out and get back to you. And apparently the local authorities were like, yeah, okay, we'll accept that idea. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, so that's next weekend. Cool. Um, Well, I wish, yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. You know, speaking of community, as you know, we've set up a new Facebook forum for Gravel Ride Podcast listeners, and it's really starting to gain some steam, and people are starting to kick questions in there, and there's a lot of interaction. So, A, listeners, please join. We'd love to have you over there. But B, this week's episode is really driven by a couple questions that came in there, and also a listener, Howard, over in Maryland that I've been talking with about his new salsa warbird that we just helped him pick up. And kind of what's next. So the questions are really around how often do you wash your bike and what are some bicycle maintenance tips and tricks and rituals that we should all be bringing into our lives. So I thought those were that would be a great subject matter for us to talk about today. Sure. Yeah. And I know we were, were nerding about this a little bit yesterday and uh, uh, <laughs> uh, teased out some, some, some best and some worst practices on this. So this will be a fun topic. Yeah, it'll be a little bit of back and forth because as the <laughs> listener, anybody who follows me on Instagram knows I'm sort of notorious for letting my bike get really, really dirty before I wash it. So let's kick that off. How often do you, how often do you wash your bike? What's your ritual around that? Well, so I am a fan on this type of bike of having a nice dirt patina. So I don't, I don't, I don't consider it dirty. I consider it like that's how it should look if I'm riding it right, and if I'm using more of my time to like enjoy the ride rather than like making my bike look pretty for other people. Uh, so that that's kind of my thing. And and I say that like I used to be the guy who always showed up with his bike looking immaculate because you know I I was trying to get a company off the ground and look legitimate and all this other stuff. Now it's just like no, the legitimate thing is like you show up and your bike is dirty because you you rode it. I mean, come on. So yeah, if, so, if I'm being honest, I'm in the in the if it ain't broke don't fix it. So there is a certain level and particularly around like when we get a heavy fog and sort of our dusty dirt, it really tends to stick to the bike. And that's, that will usually get me washing the bike, but I'm, I'm probably an every couple or three week kind of bike washer guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it depends on your conditions. Obviously, if you're riding in mud and so on, things are getting caked on, you, you know, you want to get that off. Um, but if you're riding in dry conditions and you just get a little bit of dust accumulating and it's not like sticky grime or like tire sealant that's going to congeal and, and like get all nasty, then, yeah, I just I do it when it becomes too much. Now, that that's the, the overall bike. But of course, like you get into drivetrain and things like that. That's a different story. I am very much on top of that. And that's actually a critical element. Yeah, me too. And let's we'll dive into that in a minute with the, the bike wash setup. I mean, for me, I've been fortunate that I invested in a bike stand a long time ago. It's probably 20 years ago that I bought a proper bike stand. And it, I, 
it was a pain spending the money at that point, but I love having it now because I, I basically just put my bike up in the bike stand and I put a little water from a hose, not being careful not to like nail the bearing, any bearing areas with any high pressure. And then my setup is I use a little bit of simple green in a water bucket and I have sponges and some sort of bike specific kind of um, wire, not wire brushes, but, um, you know, hair brushes that I can get in some of the small parts. So I kind of go over with it, with that, and then I give it a rinse and then I get into the lubing. Is that it? You know, what's, what's your process like? Well, the, and you mentioned the brushes, like these, um, automotive style, uh, feather bristle brushes work really well because they, you know, they're not overly abrasive and, and, you know, they clean off well and, and you get a lot of soap in there and so on. Um, simple green works well, and it says non-toxic, but then it has a bunch of stuff, ingredients on there that you can't pronounce. Um, I'm a big fan of like pure Castile soap. So I'll use um, just a little bit of uh, Dr. Bronner's and it has this nice, you know, chamomile or minty fresh smell as well. But you really, if you're going to go this route, um, it is essential that you use a soap that doesn't have any moisturizers, any sort of wax, so like car wash is out. And the reason for this is that it will deposit material, particularly on your rotors, that will cause rotor and pad contamination, squealy brakes, poor poor performance, and so on. So you really need a soap that is like a pure soap. And, and Dr. Bronner's Pure Castile Soap is, is excellent for this sort of thing. And just general cleaning outside a bike, actually. Am I correct in that Dr. Bronner's is something like I might have seen in REI for camping? Oh, certainly. Yeah, they have it at Trader Joe's and things like that. It can be, it, it's pricier than, you know, the store brand and the national brands, but it's also vastly more concentrated. So you don't use it straight up. You, it's like a, you know, 10 to 1, 16 to 1 ratio. And, you know, I use it for everything from cleaning my bike to cleaning my countertops and so on. Um, you know, I, I like a, a more natural uh, approach to, to washing things. And, and it cuts through grease really effectively. And as much as I may like push off washing my bike, I have to say I, I do like it after it's done that first day when I'm gleaming again with showroom pride. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and let's talk about keeping it in that showroom condition while we're here. So, um, you know, one of the things that you really want to be on top of, um, and this is something that that we instituted internally and, and that really... Um, you, you want to do yourself is make sure that your your bicycle has the appropriate frame protection on it. So what do I mean by this? Um, this is like 3M Scotchgard clear adhesive film cut to cover the bottom of your down tube, uh, your chain stay, um, both where the chain mate hit on the top and bottom, but also on the insides where a tire caked in mud might rub and wear through the paint and potentially the carbon, uh, the insides of the fork blades, um, the head tube, if you're going to have a bar bag up front in particular, uh, because that that front brake hose may rub, which I've seen a number of times, and it's really sad. And it's just like, well, you know, I, I, I told you that this this would happen. You, you want to have that frame protection on there. Uh, I'm trying to think where else. If you're doing frame bags, any sort of bag system on your bike, wherever that bag system is attaching, again, apply this film. And it'll just keep your bike looking great for a really, really long time. Yeah, I want to highlight one of the things that you talked about, because uh, I remember after the Mid-South event, riders complaining, you know, they had gone, it, it was so muddy that they were dragging mud through their frames and scratching, as you're describing, scratching like the inside of their fork and the inside of the, you know, the rear part of the frame. So, that, I mean, I think that's a good pro tip to just pay a little attention there. And, you know, I know I got some of the 3M film 
um, pretty readily. I just got a big block of it and I've been cutting it in appropriate shapes for wherever it needs to be augmented. And then I'm also a big fan just for this, mainly for the style, but also for the protection. There's a company all mountain style that's got some really cool decals on it that you might've seen on my bike that I really love. If you're just looking for not only protection, but a little bit of flair to your bike and you know, you know, I like a little bit of flair, Randall. Yeah. Well, and, and I've met those guys before. I think I met them at Sea Otter like a couple of years ago when that was still a thing to do in public and do, do in person. And, uh, you know, seemed like a good crew over there as well, but yeah, and definitely a way to both protect and to accessorize. Yeah. So there's also those things like as you're cleaning your bike or even really when you put it into your garage or wherever it's housed each night to think about before your next ride, lubing the chain is obviously like a key component of keeping the bike running well. Yeah. And, and before we jump into lubing your chain, I want to just throw out after you've washed your bike, um, a, a product like Bike Lust wiping over all the surfaces and so on, not not only will give it that extra bit of shine, but also um, will help to prevent mate- um, you know mud and so on from caking on again. Uh, so it, it, it also helps you to maintain it longer. So when next time it gets muddy, you can actually just blast it with the hose and, and it'll come off. Interesting. Um, you know, I heard about, I think it was Amanda Nauman told me that she was experimenting with that prior to Mid-South because she mm-hmm. knew it was going to be incredibly muddy the next day. And I forget oh, yeah. what she what she put on the bike, but she was like, the goal, whether it worked or not, it was such a an S show at the end of the day. But yeah. the goal was to, you know, make the, the frame a little less likely to hold the, the, the mud when it came through. Yeah, things, it, it just provides a surface that things don't bond to as well as, say, like the clear coat of your paint. Uh, so it, it's good in that regard, but let's, let's dive into chains because this is like the single most important thing that you can do to save yourself a lot of expense because chains are cheap and chain lube is cheaper and, um, you know, cogs, you know, chain rings and cassettes, they're expensive. So if we want, what we want to be doing is staying on ch- top of chain maintenance, which means first at, before, like before or after any ride, I'm, I'm wiping my chain. So any excess material that's on there, I want to get off because even, even lubricant that is on the outside, it's not doing anything. Lubricant only works between the pins and the rollers and, and the moving parts of the chain. So anything else is just out on the surface accumulating schmutz. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing. Not only is it not useful, it actually has that negative effect of, of accumulating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then this gets into lubing. Um, and I know that you have uh, a preference uh, uh, on, on lube that's a bit different than mine. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll bring up, we, we can talk more about this in a moment, but I'll, I'll just bring up the one that I like, which is, is a product called Squirt, which is a water-based wax lube with the water as the, um, the solvent and the penetrant, and then that delivers the wax deep into the chain. And this is kind of the next best thing to... A um, like getting your your chain waxed in like a wax bath and so on, where people you know have these elaborate processes they, they go through, and it works really well, but it's a lot of work. This is the next best thing, um, and then you wipe off whatever lube you're using. You wipe off the excess. So um, what I'll do is I'll put the the bike between my legs from the back, and then I will turn the cranks backwards with one hand, and I'll grab the chain by um, the the lower pulley with a cloth spin it through my hand, wipe, the, wipe all the excess stuff off, 
then I'll go in the same backwards direction and apply the lube from that same place. And then I'll run and run through a few times. I don't need to run through the gears because I'm not lubricating the gears. I'm only lubricating the chain the, between the pins and rollers. And then I'll wipe off the excess uh, at the end of that process before my ride. Yeah, it's uh, pretty similar to my process. I, I like a lube called T9. And I've just found that it works well across all conditions. And it tends to not accumulate a lot of crap along the way from the trail. So I follow a similar process, as I said, where I'm, I'm really just focusing on the inside of the chain and I'm wiping off any excess on the outside of the chain. Um, I found that it, it stays on a while. I've had similar good success with Squirt. Actually, I used that in South Africa quite a bit. Um, one little pro tip I will give you, if you're riding uh, you know, a ride that's longer than four hours or something, bring a little bottle of chain lube oh, with yeah. you. Yep, yep. You would be amazed at the feelings of jealousy anybody around you will have as you relubricate your chain i kind of, it's kind of akin to when i'm riding a bar bag in the winter and i bring out a second set of gloves for a descent <laughs> that aren't sweaty anymore it's just one of those neat things that's like why not you know a, a tiny bottle of lube and they're available in sample sizes is so small to carry and it packs such a great benefit and i'm just going to throw out um you know, it brings up an idea. At some point, maybe we talk about things to bring on the ride. Uh, and so if anyone wants to hear that conversation about like little pro tips like this of stuff to bring on the ride, uh, let us know in our Facebook group. And if we get enough people that want to hear it, we'll definitely dive in uh, the weeds on that as well. Yeah. So, so our number one is definitely lube your chain. Like just stay, stay on top of that. Never, ever dry it at ride a dry chain. But there's other parts of the bike that we want to be looking at. There's some that are going to give us very specific feedback that they need to be replaced, but others are maybe a little bit more subtle. So let's kind of knock out a few of those. Well, so before we get away from chain, uh, chains should be checked often. So there is a very cheap tool. Uh, don't say it, tool. Randall. Don't, What's don't this? say it. Don't say it. You know, I don't have that tool. Yeah. So <laughs> the $8 tool, I can't remember the one that I have. It's made by Park Tools. It's, you know, it's whatever. We'll, we'll try to find the, the, the name for it. But these are like dirt cheap tools. And basically it's a go, no go tool. You put it in the chain, you know, you grab one of the links. And then if, if, the, if the tool drops in between the links on the other side, you know that the chain has elongated um, such that it is causing excess wear on your cogs. And so that chain should be replaced. My philosophy is like, replace, keep on top of your chain so it doesn't wear prematurely, and then replace it long before um, you have any elongation. It's not stretch, it's just the pins and the rollers are wearing, and that's what causes the the thing to elongate. And chains, like, you can get a a decent chain, like the chains that we do spe- uh, stock on our standard bike, um, you can get for like 15 to 20 bucks. And the cassettes that we, that we stock spec, like those are like 80 to anywhere from like 250 bucks. And then the chain ring is going to be 50 bucks. So like how many, you can get through three or four chains and many, many thousands of miles without replacing your cogs if you stay on top of lubrication and checking it and uh, replacing it often. In fact, I would say if you don't have a chain right now in like at your house ready to go when the time comes and a chain checker, go, you know, go ahead and pick that up now and save yourself the, the, the hassle and the expense of waiting until everything wears down. Is that chain checker, is it a binary thing? I mean, am I just looking at it and saying, okay, I'm, I'm worn or not worn, or is there a gradations on it? Um, they're, the one that I have has two uh, different measurements, and I think it's like, uh, so, so when in doubt, go with the more conservative one 
like replace it more often than than necessary and you can spend a bit more money on chains that have like super hardened pins and rollers and and there is some uh, data that suggests that they wear will wear longer uh, but the single biggest thing that's going to make an impact on the durability of your chain uh, you know now that you're checking it is the lubricant staying on top of that keeping it clean uh, which is why I like the wax based stuff because it tends to have the lowest friction associated with it and that friction is a proxy for wear yeah interesting that makes sense yeah yeah um, all right, so we've we've gone we've gone deep nerd on chains. We could probably keep going, but we should probably pull out at this point as well. <laughs> I think so. I think we, I think we should move on. <laughs> all right, so we talked about chain rings and cassettes, um, and that will be like you know if you have a one by chain ring, they'll actually go quite a long time. But if you can pull the chain off the ring and like have a, it, it can be harder to gauge. I don't have. Uh, I don't have like a conclusive way of saying that you need to replace it other than if you're, if you're, if you, if your chain got super elongated before you replace it, there's a very good chance that when you put the new chain on, it's not going to shift properly. It's going to sound like it's grinding. It's only, it's not going to, it's only going to be engaging one or two teeth at a time because the chain, you know, the teeth are worn in a way that doesn't allow all of them to engage at once. Um, so, so that can be... I would say as a frame of reference, I mean, I've probably replaced my chain three times and I haven't had to replace uh, rings or cassettes. I've been riding the same chain ring and cassette since the prototype that I started the company with. Uh, now, that also is a commentary on, on me not maybe getting quite enough riding in, but I, I ride a fair amount and I ride hard and in the dirt. So um, I, I'm very much on top of my chains. And, you know, also um, this is where like having chain rings and cassettes that are made out of, you know, hardened materials comes into play too. Yeah. The, the other area that, that I tend to blow through just because we've got steep terrain here are my um, disc brake pads. Yeah. And- it's an area of constant frustration when I have to buy disc brake pads. Actually, a listener pinged me and said, there's a company that I can buy in bulk from. I can get 150 pads or something. Or no, not 150 pads. It was like 50 pads. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, gosh, I wish I had made that decision the moment I moved the tram <laughs> and just had a stockpile in the garage. Because, uh, yeah, I hate buying disc brake pads, but I tend to burn through them pretty quickly. Yeah, and uh, it's like thirty bucks for a set of brake pads, really, really, and it comes with more packaging in terms of like mass and volume than the pads themselves. To somehow, I don't know, give you the sense that that it's worth that. Um, these things cost like a buck to make, but yeah, that's that's the way the game is right now. But brake pads, um, there's actually something to be said here. Um, stay away from metallic. Go with semi-metallic, um, which are half metallic, half organic. Or if you live in a dry area, you can go with organic, which will wear more quickly, but kind of give you optimum braking force and modulation. The semi-metallic tends to be um, kind of the, the, the balance between the two, and that's what I tend to run. Uh, but you can, you can see pads out there that are like metallic, and you're just not going to get the braking power that you want out of them. What are the telltale signs that you should be looking at your brake pads? Uh, some of them will actually start to squeal and so on. But if you see like... You can look, just flip your bike upside down and look through the pads and you'll see, look at the pads and you'll see that the material is worn almost to the point where like the spring that is the separator spring that's keeping the pads apart um, is almost being, you know, coming in contact with the rotor. And you want to do it before that happens because as soon as that comes in contact with the rotor, you're now grinding down the rotor. Yeah, I think if you're, 
if you're a, a new disc brake bike owner, you may not have taken the moment to look at your rotors prior to starting to ride, which is fine. But when you do replace the, the uh, excuse me, the brake pad, when you do replace the brake pad, take a look at it. Cause as you're saying, you, you know, you sort of see like a millimeter or so of pad and then it becomes pretty apparent when you look at it again, how much has worn down. And, uh, you know, I can be a little bit ashamed to admit, you know, I've definitely looked at it and it's gone all the way down to the metal on the last ride before I've replaced the pad, which is awful for the rotor, but I got to break somehow on my way back to my house. <laughs> um, another pro tip for everybody, extra brake pads in your kit. I bring an extra set along with my tiny little thing of lube and an extra derailleur hanger and a little bottle of sealant. Man, you, you are prepared. I mean, I think that advice for me holds true when I'm out on an adventure or a tour or I'm traveling to a foreign country. You got to bring all the supplies and I would say yes, like more and more I'm starting to think like having an extra set of brake pads around at all times is a good thing. I just hate the feeling of like being out on a big ride and then knowing my brake pads are worn. It's just like, oh, now I have to baby my, you know, now I can't go shred this stuff the way that I want to. And it's it's actually taking away from my experience in the moment. So I'm not going to be slowed down by 10 grams, but I am going to be slowed down by non-functional brakes. I don't know, Randall. We're going to have to figure this out on the trail. But if you're if you're <laughs> stopping me and telling me you're going to change your brake pads, I'm going to put a timer on you because I'm not going to want to sit around as long as it takes me personally to change a brake pad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and I will bring out it's, it's, one tip in the tool, one tip in the toolbox just to remember about brake pads is keeping those bright orange kind of spacers that the the brakes may have shipped with or acquiring oh, yeah. those if they didn't come with the bike are critical when you're swapping the brake pads on. Cause as I understand it and I've experienced, you know, the, the, the caliper piston is going to move in and adjust as the pad wears. So mm-hmm. when I go to put the new set of pads in, the pistons are pushed in a little bit. So inevitably yeah. when I stick the rotor back through there, it's going to be rubbing tightly. So unless you have one of those plastic blocks to kind of help move the pads out, um, you know, you can be in a lot of trouble and frustration in the home repair. Yeah, and to help people visualize this, most calipers are designed with a, a, a square seal going around the piston. And when you, when you brake, that square becomes a parallelogram, and then the piston goes back where it was. But then if it goes past a certain point, the piston slips, and then that kind of resets the zero. And so in this case, you put in new pads, you need to push the pistons back to the beginning of that you know, progression that brought them in as the pads wore. And so that's what you use this thing for. It's also great when you're traveling with your bike to put them in there so that the pads don't come together. Um, so if you're like packing your bike for an adventure, which, which I you know, do just did recently, um, that's, it's a good thing to have around as well. Yeah. And one pro tip again is never grab the brake lever when you don't have the wheel installed with the disc because that can bring the bring those pistons in um in a way that you know you could have just been like trying to move the bike and you accidentally grabbed it and all of a sudden you have to put a lot more effort in to get those pistons back in the right position well it's bad enough when the pads are in there but you can usually pry those apart if the pads aren't in the piston will go right past the seal and now you're really screwed and sometimes you end up either like the service to fix that can be more expensive than a new caliper yeah exactly so like that pro tip of like sticking those little plastic things in when you're traveling with your bike is critical because inevitably as you're bringing your bag your bike out of your bag you might grab the brake lever by mistake Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right so i think we we covered that pretty comprehensively and then rotors you know rotors are something where um 
I've I mean I almost never replace rotors. And even when I've like made the mistake of letting the the spring contact them and like grinding it out, usually I find that if I clean the rotors and clean the uh, the pads with some you know replace the pads and clean everything up with a, a high um, purity isopropyl alcohol that I can eventually wear down the rotor again, such that I'm not getting any chatter and things like that. So you basically wear it, you, you replace it when it's totally screwed. Um, or when it's worn to a point where it's, it's so thin that like it, it, it's time and there are little yeah. gauges that you can get for that. That mimics my experience. I mean, I think the only time I've in recent memory replaced a rotor is when it got bent in shipping and I felt like I couldn't bend it back safely. Yeah. Which is, is, is its own art being able to true a rotor. I do, I can do it. There are tools for this. I can do it with a flathead screwdriver on the side of the road. Um, but, um, yeah, don't give up on a rotor that's warped. You just need someone who really knows what they're doing to show you how to do it. And you can learn that yourself over time. Shall we keep going? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should talk a little bit about tires because obviously we're, Uh we're all going to wear our tires and, um, you know, most of us riding tubeless, obviously we have got tire sealant that we got to consider inside. Mm-hmm. So how would, you know, what are the thoughts on tires and sealant? Uh, so depending on the porosity of the tire and the, the sealant itself, you know, if you like, we, we have, um, we were running some WTB byways on our bikes initially. We now use a venture, which has a, a similar casing. Those tires tend to be, uh, and, and it's the, um, the tan wall, um, which tend to be more porous. Uh, so it makes a tire that already is somewhat porous, that much more porous. And so the sealant is actually sealing the tire, um, all the micropores in the tire. And so right off the bat, like you're going to want to use more sealant than, you know, than maybe like what would have been recommended. And I actually always recommend people put in more sealant because why not? Um, and, you know, I would check after if it's a new tire after no more than, you know, two months you're probably going to want to be re-upping the sealant. If you don't have anything that is liquid and able to slosh around a little bit, that's a good indication uh, that that it's time for more sealant. And the thing is, like, you know, when you're riding, it's not like the sealant is sloshing around a ton. Centripetal force is pushing it to the edges of the tire, and it's coating it, and it's not really materially affecting your efficiency on the bike. So put some extra sealant in there. Uh, it's not a bad idea. I actually bring a little 60 milliliter bottle with me anyways, just in case I have a problem or somebody I'm riding with has a problem because I en- always end up being that guy who's prepared uh, for that reason, um, which I, I, I like to be. So one of the things that I was I highlighted in my notes about tools that I it didn't initially have when I started riding, but I, I find indispensable at this point are a valve core remover. Yes. For yeah. installing the sealant. So you can take out kind of the little tip of a Presta valve that gives you a direct line into the tire. And, and most tire sealants come with type some type of, you know, tube or otherwise receptacle to kind of push the sealant directly in. So you don't have to remove the tire to put sealant in. Yeah, and this is like this tiny little plastic or ideally metal kind of thing that often gets thrown away that comes with, you know, a lot of wheel sets and things like this. They cost, I mean, I think we pay like five cents to throw them in the box with our wheels. So it's not like it costs much. Um, But yeah, it's a good thing to have. Um, I don't see a lot of tools actually that have that valve core remover. And that's that's kind of a miss. Uh, Even my favorite tool doesn't have that. This um, Crank Brothers, uh, I think it's the T15 is like the my my favorite tool of the bunch yet and it doesn't doesn't have this little this little uh core remover. Yeah, I think there's a number of them that are starting to think about it. It's one of those things along with um like uh the bacon strips or the sort of p- hole plugs that are coming. I've even seen like a uh-huh. 
a tool that has the chain stretch detector built yeah. into it. I think it was from Topeak coming Ooh. out, um, which is oh, kind of interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because that's something that actually should be used more often than, say, the four mil that you use to adjust your SEM or your seat post, right? You should be checking your chain every several rides, like, you know, hands down. So that's that's smart. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, right on. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to keep on top of that. And obviously, like tire wear, you're going to start to see um, the knobs wear down on some of these off-road tires. To me, it's mm-hmm. always been fairly obvious when I've kind of taken the tire too far do you have any thoughts on how you approach that yeah i always put the new tire up front and then take the front tire and put it in the back because especially on a bike like these you know i, I like a a file tread or a semi-slick in the rear anyways and so if i started with a file tread up front and it becomes a semi-slick well then great i got the perfect rear tire and then i put you know a, a file tread up front so I, I i often run like a i think right now i'm running a a Sendero front and a Byway rear, but I could very well run a Sendero front and a Venture rear and have the rear wear down through the knobs and it'll still be good because I just improving my roll efficiency, rolling efficiency as it as it as it goes down. Obviously, yeah. you know you don't want to let it go too far because you, your puncture resistance goes down as you start wearing deeper, like beyond the level of the the base of the. Uh, you know, the, the tread, the cavity between the, the little blocks. But, um, but that can be a good strategy for like getting the most out of your tires. Uh, another thing I just throw out is that if you have a sidewall cut, your tire's gone. Um, like get yourself home with the tube and then toss it. If you have a puncture in the main tread of the tire, then sometimes a Dyna plug and some sealant will get that done. And if that happens to you, just like be extra safe, bring some extra sealant with you in a tube on the trail in case that plug or that, that, you know, that coagulated sealant, uh, fails. But oftentimes you can keep riding that, uh, riding that out. I like to yeah, try was, to get as much as I can out of stuff. Same. Yeah. Nothing vexes me more than when I flat on a relatively new tire, but that's particularly been my experience. You know, the sidewall, as you said, it's kind of game over. I'm just thankful I made it home. And I know I'm, I'm definitely not heading out on that tire, no matter mm-hmm. how good I thought the repair was, but I have been able to successfully ride, uh, newish tires that had, uh, some sort of hole develop in the, in the, the main area, the tread that I plugged effectively. And, you know, I've had good success with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually a, a final thing on tires that jumps out is, um, if you're not very competent or confident in dealing with this sort of thing on the trail, or if you just don't want to ever have to deal with it, go with tires with a reputation of having a beefier casing. Yes, they'll be heavier. Yes, they won't be as supple. Yes, they won't you know be as cushy and so on, but you won't have to worry about that. So I tend to push the limits of, of, of cushiness, but I, I, I also am very careful about the lines I choose. Yeah, on that subject, next week I've got um, Jan N.A. from Rene Ers Tires coming to talk, and he's very scientific about his tires and had some really interesting thoughts just about sidewalls. They offer four different gradations of sidewalls, mm-hmm, which just mm-hmm. like blew my mind, kind of thinking through what that might look like. But you know, as we know, there's a lot of race courses out there and types of terrain that are reputed for being super hard on the sidewalls of your tires, just because of the shape of the rocks, you know, particularly out there in Kansas, for example. So, you know, it's interesting to think about, I would hate to have, you know, a 200 mile event in Kansas ruined because I took a sidewall cut when I decided I was going to ride something super light versus something burlier and more appropriate for the terrain I was going to hit. 
Yeah, or higher volume because then your you know your pounds per square inch are going down, which means that the you know the likelihood of a puncture is going down proportionally, assuming a similar casing construction. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, the, the you know, there's many other areas of the bike that we could drill into. Um, is there anything else that you think you'd highlight in terms of sort of a monthly take a look, make sure it's still going well? Um, so, I mean, other things that come up, like general lubrication, making sure like the interfaces between carbon and aluminum or other metals are are greased or have a friction paste or have an anti-seize or something on there that's going to keep galvanic corrosion from, you know, causing them to bind and get seized. Um, the, the, the last thing is like, you know, that I'm a big fan of mechanical shifting, um, in, in a one by application, if the cable routing is done well, which is often not the case, but if it is done well, um, cables and housings, uh, if your shifting is poor, a lot of people come to me like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my, my SRAM, my Shimano shifting is just crap and I need to upgrade. It's like, no, you don't. Your housing and your cables and your cable routing is crap or, or, or are worn or whatever it is. So, you know, poor cable routing, sometimes you can, you can find a way to route in a, in a cleaner, more straight path through a frame or whatever. Um, but just going with, you know, a, a good quality cable and housing set. And it doesn't have to be super fancy, but like a, a smooth you know, a smooth ground cable, maybe with a coating on it. Uh, you don't really, I don't put lubricant inside the housings. It's generally superfluous. Um, but yeah, if you're having shifting issues, um, for sure. Oh, check your derailleur hanger. Cause sometimes you might've tweaked the derailleur hanger and that's causing the issue. Uh, and if it's not that, uh, and it's not the chain, and it's not the cogs. Oftentimes it'll just be, um, your, your shift cable and housing, which is causing friction, which is in turn making the lever hard to push. It's making it you know, kind of catch. So when you hit the lever to drop it down, it won't drop right away and it kind of gets vague. Uh, so yeah, cables and housings are something where if you're noticing shifting issues, assume, don't assume that it's something expensive that you have to replace other than just cables and housings done by someone who knows how to route it properly. Yeah, I think that type of attention can really just sort of make it seem factory new again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is nice. I mean, I think it's worth saying that gravel bikes, probably more so than any other bike I've owned in any other sort of cycling category, have tend to, tended to require just more maintenance and attention. Maybe attention's the right word. I just am way more on top of chain lube than I ever am on a road bike maybe similar on a mountain bike, but I don't tend to mountain bike as much. So for me, like I just pay attention to the gravel bike because I want it to be in tip top shape all the time. Well, I think there's also this element of you're riding You're putting in the miles and hours that you would have put on a road bike on a bike that you're riding the same similar conditions and terrain that you would have ridden a mountain bike. So you have the, you know, the amount of time on, and then you have the exposure. Uh, so that in that case, like, yes, you need to be more on top of it. And ideally, these bikes should be designed and spec'd in a way that is biased towards, you know, reduced servicing and improved serviceability, um, as opposed to having them designed like featherweight, you know, um, uh, road racing bikes that uh, are for, you know, teams that have mechanics. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying there, for sure, Randall. I mean, I, you, it's... I abuse this gravel bike a month and I love, you know, that's what I love it for. But I also know that I can, I can go out there and ride it on the road and I would hate to have invested in equipment that was more oriented towards, you know, light use off road and more road or more road action. Yeah. No, it, it constrains your experience. Like yeah. If, if you're maintaining your bike, you're going like that's taking away from your enjoyment of the ride. 
Yeah, absolutely. If, if you have to maintain your bike. Uh, ultimately, yeah. there's some basic maintenance you have to do. Yeah. So Well, cool. I think that was a great sort of gravel bike maintenance 101 for the listener. And hopefully this kind of episode or the snippet of the episode, which has gone a bit longer than we thought, but I think it was all great stuff for the listener to hear. Hopefully mm-hmm. it can just sort of stand on its own and be a reference guide for anybody who's kind of coming into the gravel scene and gotten a new bike, et cetera. Yeah. 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 Since we're a bit long, you know, on the community side of things, I maybe just wanted to focus our conversation on just sort of one aspect of riding. We talked about how much we both personally value the meditative value of riding solo and Mm -hmm. solo rides have been kind of forced upon us in many ways due to the global pandemic. But I just wanted to to focus our conversation on riding buddies. So Mm -hmm. maybe as we're kind of conscious about the pandemic we're starting to add, you know, a single ride buddy into our lives rather than a group ride that we're all missing. What do you look for in a riding buddy? Because I've got some really specific things. Well, um, I mean, you're you're one of my favorite people to ride with. So, Yay. you know, a lot of those characteristics, um, somebody who... I can connect with not just on this shared experience that we love, which is important and which which I care about. I mean, I've obviously built kind of my my career and a lot of my community around this experience. Um, but actually, it's what I care about is like we will talk about like we'll talk about what's going on in our inner worlds. We'll talk about our families. We'll talk about uh, you know the the world at large and and really. I love to ride with people who have the, uh, who are there to connect, not just there to like, and, and you know, just like having an outstanding experience and like focusing on the ride. I love that too. I love going out on, you know, fast group rides and, and hammering and keeping up and having that competitive element to it. But at the end of the day, you know, if I had to choose what to do day in, day out with a friend, you know, with on a group ride, it would be like, let's have an adventure together and let's connect over that adventure. Yeah, I guess I've got both sort of the what I'm looking for personality wise, as well as pace ride and orientation ride. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm rarely looking for anybody that I'm just trying to beat up a hill or be beaten by. I don't really get off on that competitive element of my gravel riding experience. But as you know, like, I'm probably a better listener than a talker. I probably shouldn't admit that as a podcast host, but I do really enjoy listening. So I was joking with you yesterday that, you know, the reason why you're one of my favorites is like, we, we can do a 25 minute climb and I can let you do all the talking and I'm just listening and, and teeing you up. I just got kind of meta for a second. So, so is this why I was invited to, to go host this, these little segments with yeah. you? <laughs> Probably so. I mean, I did, you know, as you know, I did want my voice to be heard a little bit more to the listener and cover some topics that I felt passionate about. But at the end of the day, I, I do enjoy having, having good friends who like to talk like you on the pod and just kind of getting in, digging into things. All right. Well, um, I'm going to propose to everyone listening, if you would like to hear me interview Craig on a future episode and have him in the hot seat, uh, let us know. And uh, maybe we can coax him to, to share more of his story and be the talker and I'll be the listener this time around. <laughs> I think that's a good idea, Randall. If the, if the crowds request it, I will be there. <laughs> I will tell my story. <laughs> but that's a great place to end. I mean, I wish we dug in a little bit more on the community, but we're running a little bit long. Yeah. Definitely jump into that Facebook forum where I would love to hear from you. I mean, who are your riding buddies and what do you look for? Um, you know, as we're kind of 
adding people back into our riding experiences. Um, you know, I'm sure we all have that go-to buddy that we like to go out and pedal with. Yeah. 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 So with that, man, yeah, good to talk to you and, uh, we'll talk again soon. Always a pleasure. Take care. That's it for another edition of in the dirt from the gravel ride podcast. Thanks for sharing part of your week with us. And I hope that all those tips we flushed out in the conversation are going to keep your gravel bike in tip top shape over the coming year. If you're looking to support the podcast, rating and reviews are hugely important to us and give us a lot of feedback as to the direction we're going as a podcast. Also, if you're able, check out buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride for some of those new perks I've mentioned. I'm going to be putting new perks in the membership section over time from some of our great sponsors and just some of the things I'm able to pull together and do as a passionate member of this gravel cycling community. So until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. 